Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello, Virginia. Hello, divers. Welcome to the Diving In podcast, where we have a conversation about all things books, which we try to keep spoiler-free as much as possible, except for when we have a book club where we do a really yes. deep dive. Or when Louise gets a bit too excited about <laughs> a book and gives away too many spoilers. Uh, and we'll also chat about a few other things that we've been diving into recently. Today we have the books in our theme, which we're going to chat about in a little while. Uh, we have a couple of bookish items, actually. We have a little life hack and we have a few other non-bookish things that we've been diving into. And remember that we list in our show notes all the things that we discuss in our mm. conversation and we also post photographs of all the books in our Instagram account, which is at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And we'd love you to pop over there and say hello. We get some great messages and we do. feedback we do. over there. It's a lot of fun. But before we get to our theme books, we have a couple of feedback messages that we wanted to read out. Uh, did you want to do yours first, Lou? Yes. Okay. So this comes from Beth. Her Instagram account is Little Book Bell, and I think uh, you've commented what beautiful photographs she has. She says, "Congratulations on your podcast, ladies. I discovered it back in 2019. I was searching for Barbara Pym and your episode." and some British stories came up. I listened and I was hooked. I loved it. I loved all the authors you discussed and you always have great discussions and book recommendations. So thank you, Beth. That's lovely. Oh, that is nice. That's a gorgeous one. I've got one here from Jane Santa Hess who says, Hello, love your podcasts. Regarding your question about why we gravitate towards scary supernatural topics... To me, it is about our shadow side. It is part of our personalities that we all possess, but below consciousness. Also, it is part of us we prefer not to look at or personify like the devil. Carl Jung wrote prolifically about the shadow and why it is important to explore, to balance or come to terms with ourselves through inner work. Thanks, Jane. Mm. I thought that was such a great answer. Mm. And that has actually made me feel a little bit more satisfied mm. about that question that I've been asking yes. myself. Yes, excellent. Today we're going to do a deep dive into a single author we love, and that is Maggie O'Farrell. We've done this twice before. We did a whole episode on Anne Patchett. Mm. That was in episode seven. And we also did a whole episode on uh, Nancy Mitford mm. and her family in episode 13. And they were both Great fun. So much fun to mm. do, weren't they? And mm. they were also very well received. People mm. quite enjoyed those. So we think we'll do more of them in future because it's a lot of fun to sort of home in on one writer and watch their creative development. Yeah, I agree. And look at their their whole and the themes, the themes between books and yes, yeah. the similarities and yes. differences. Mm. Yeah, it's great. 
Today we're going to chat about four uh, Maggie O'Farrell books because she's such a beautiful writer. We both loved Hamnet so much. We talked about Hamnet in our Twin Tales episode, which was episode 21. And one of the reasons this idea for doing uh, Maggie O'Farrell came to us is that Tinder Press, which is an imprint of Hachette, has released a set of her earlier books, all in uh, complementary designs, and they're quite eye-catching. And we're all suckers for a matching set. And anyone who's seen my Instagram post knows that I'm hooked in by a matching set, particularly a matching set of you books. You have to have all of them. <laughs> well, yeah, but the funny thing is I can never bring myself to buy the whole set at the beginning. No. So I'll yes. see it and I'll, I'm just going to yes. get two or three of these. It just seems too extravagant, whatever. And then I always go home and think. Well, Why didn't I? Yeah, and I always have they're to go They're quite back retro and, covers, aren't they? They're lovely are, retro yeah, covers. Yeah. I love them. Yeah, yeah they're great. Mm. Maggie O'Farrell was born in 1972 and she's described as Northern Irish slash British. I think she was born in Northern Ireland. She's lived in Wales as a child of Scotland. I'm pretty sure she's living in Britain now. A child of the British Isles. Yes. And she looks like a classic Irish beauty with this Mm. striking red curls. She's very beautiful. And Mm. she's married to the novelist William Sutcliffe. And they met at Cambridge and they have three children. Her debut novel was After You'd Gone, which is one I'm going to talk about today, and it won the Betty Trask Award, which I hadn't heard of. Uh, It's a Commonwealth Award, and it's for first novels by authors under the age of 35. Wow. She's written about eight novels and one memoir, and I think also a children's book so far. I've read five of her books, I think, and I've loved every single one, and they're all pretty different, and I'm very keen to get my hot little hands on some of the ones that I haven't read. She's won lots of prizes for her books, including the Women's Prize for Fiction for Hamnet in 2020. We've decided that we're going to talk about these in the order that she wrote them and yeah, published perfect. them, just because it's quite fun to sort of trace the, the progress of them. So the first one that she wrote, as I mentioned, was After You'd Gone, and she wrote that in 2000. And I, it was only as I was thinking about this for this episode that I realised that my, the two books that I've read for today have a slightly similar mm. beginning in that a woman in is in a crowd and sees something shocking or upsetting and then some drama Mm. unfolds. Other than that, her books are not that similar, but it is such an effective Mm. beginning because it completely hooks you in because you think, what on earth did this person see and why and all the rest of it. Who needs a prologue? (laughs) Well, she does have a prologue. Oh, no! (laughs) You've preempted. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's hilarious, Luke. (laughs) I have not read that book. (laughs) So funny. Uh, So in After You'd Gone, the main character is named Alice. Mm. And just as an aside, I have a daughter named Alice and I have a theory that Alice is the name most often given to women in novels. Oh, that's a big call. It's a big call. Uh, Mm. But I notice it every time because because of my Alice. Yes. And one day I'm actually going to collate a list. So if you have books that you've loved where one of the main characters is called Alice, send me them because I think I need to make a list to sort of buffer up my case. 
So, as I said, this book has a prologue (laughs) uh, and it's told in the third person and it starts, the day she would try to kill herself, she realised winter was coming again. Pretty dramatic beginning. Mm. So, Alice, we're told in the third person, she gets up, she's in her house, she wanders out into the street, she finds herself at King's Cross Station and she sort of impulsively decides to get on the train for home which is Edinburgh, and so she gets onto the Scottish Pullman to Edinburgh and when she's on the train, she rings her sister and when she arrives in Edinburgh, both her sisters and small niece and nephew are waiting anxiously for her on the platform and they look a bit worried about her and we don't know why. And they go off to the station cafe to have a coffee and after a little while, Alice gets up to go to the toilet and when she's coming out of the toilet, she sees something shocking and the reader is not told what she sees but she's completely panicked and upset and heads straight back to London. Mm. So she basically just says to her sisters, I have to go Mm. and they're left, they've come to meet her at the train station and she says, I have to go. She's clearly not right. And that they clearly know something's up. They were worried about her even anyway, beforehand. Yes. Okay. And then they're even more worried mm. when she just inexplicably says, I have to go. And they're, they're sort of filled with dismay and bewilderment. So she heads home. She's clearly not right. She goes back outside again, walks onto a busy street and steps in front of oncoming traffic. Oh. So that's the prologue. So you're left thinking, what on earth is... Alice's issue Mm. or issues and then the novel opens up with Alice as a young girl and the whole novel like my other novel then jumps around quite a bit from Alice's childhood to her relationship with her lovely husband John how they met um, the issues arose when they got married Alice's parents and their marriage which is quite a complicated one the phone call that's made to Alice's parents telling them that Alice is now in a coma in the hospital. So it sort of rolls Mm. forward to the point at which the prologue happened. And then interspersed in each of these paragraphs are sections where Alice is speaking in the first person sort of from her coma Mm. hospital bed. Mm. So she's sort of talking about who's coming to visit her and that sort of thing. It's quite effective. I've possibly made it all sound a little bit convoluted or hard to follow, but it's absolutely Mm. not. Maggie O'Farrell's writing is so good that every transition is easy. And, in fact, until I was thinking about describing this book for today, I don't think I'd actually really noticed all the changes and how many there are. I don't remember ever once thinking, you know, wait, who's this? What? Why are they doing? You know, I was never, ever confused because she's just so skilled at making that change from one scene to the next and she takes you straight into that scene and each character is so well described that they're immediately recognisable. So this book, like I think a lot of Maggie's Mm. books, has a family secret Mm. at its heart and I can't say very much more than that but it's so good. And there's a couple of twists towards the end and then the ending is really, really good. Mm. Uh, So that was After You'd Gone by Maggie O'Farrell. I've got to read them all now. I just got to read them all. Once you start sort of 
looking at them all quite closely, mm. you realise what her talent is. Well, it's interesting you talked about, you know, her dipping in and out of eras and narratives, and, and I think that's common to all the books we're going to talk about yeah. today, that sort of dipping in and out with characters as well. And it's almost like it's, you know, writing school 101, don't do. Yes, she breaks all the rules. Yeah, she breaks all the, the yeah. narrative rules, but she does it so masterly, doesn't mm, she? Yeah. It's, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. It's all the things you are taught not to do when you're first writing. Yeah. She does, and she does it effectively. And she gets away with yeah, it. Yeah, no, superbly. Yeah, she's really good. So then the second one that I read is called The Distance Between Us, and she wrote this in... 2004. This was just as good as After You'd Gone and I read it in one long Sunday sitting. That's how much mm. I had to find out what was going on. It also has family secrets in it. So once again, I can't reveal too much, but I'll give some details about the beginning. This one has two dramatic openings. So the first one is a young woman named Stella and she's walking along a street in London and she sees walking towards her a man who shocks her. And you're not sure why or whether she knows him or whether she he just reminds her of somebody. But once again, similar to the other book, she has a sort of a panic reaction and this results in her suddenly deciding to go to Scotland and she sort of throws in a perfectly good job in radio and sort of leaves her life and heads off. And then at exactly the same moment that she's spotting this man walking towards her in London, we're in Hong Kong and there's a young man named Jake and he's sort of part of the expat community but he's not because he's although his parents are of... British and Scottish descent. He himself has never lived there. He's always lived in Hong Kong. And he is out with friends celebrating Chinese New Year. And the crowd starts to become dangerous mm-hmm. and it becomes very dangerous, in fact, to the point where people are crushed to death. And Jake himself is injured and ends up in hospital, as does one of his friends, a girl that he's been dating for a few months. Uh, And he's not in love with this girl, Mel. It's just been a very light, casual thing. And Mel has been critically injured in the crush and he's told that she won't survive the night. And from her hospital bed, she's all wired up, she mutters something about... I don't want to die without us getting married. And then Jake has to decide what to do. And I'm not really telling anything more than is in about the first Mm. few pages and what's on the back cover. A lot more happens in this book. So Mm. that may sound like a spoiler, but it absolutely isn't. So these two completely separate stories are then interwoven and they alternate. But Jake and Stella do not know one another at Mm. all and neither do their families. Mm. So Maggie O'Farrell then goes back and starts to tell us all about Mm. each of these two characters and their families and their friends and the fact you can see that there's no connection. And then it's clear that there are family secrets in Mm. both storylines. One of them is that Jake doesn't know who his father is. Mm. And then he ends up in Scotland doing some searching. That's not a spoiler. Stella has an unusually close relationship with her sister, Nina, and it seems a little bit odd, a little bit too close, a little bit unusual. 
And then their backstory slowly unfurls and we find out that the sister Nina was hospitalised for many, many months at the age of eight Mm. with encephalitis and lost a whole year of school. And it was only when I was looking into Maggie O'Farrell's life that I realised that this is exactly what happened Mm. to Maggie O'Farrell. She, at the age of eight, um, suffered from encephalitis and missed a whole year of school and... It's one of the events that she talks about in her book, I Am, I Am, I Am, which is all her near brushes Mm. with death. And the impact that it has on you. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I discovered is that Maggie has also worked in Hong Kong as a journalist. So the Hong Kong expat part of the story is also drawn Mm. from her personal experiences. And when did she write this book? This was 2004. Yes, okay. And so when the sister Nina eventually came back to school, she had a limp, she had a tremor, she had all sorts of physical problems. She'd had her head shaved, so hair was growing back. And she was put back a year in class, which meant that she was now in her younger sister Mm. Stella's class. And that made them both ripe for bullying. And that bullying is central to the story. So if bullying is something that might be upsetting for you, maybe read another one of Maggie's Mm. books. It's not graphically told in this, but that is sort of Mm. a central theme in the story. So needless to say, at a point in the story, Jack's story and Stella's story intersect. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. There are lots of revelations, lots of fascinating family dynamics and a fabulous ending. It's a Mm. really fantastic ending. I think the thing I like most about her writing is that you don't really notice it. Mm -hmm. It's not self-conscious writing. It's not showing off. All her writing is done in service to telling the story. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, And she's a great storyteller. Mm. So that was the thing that I really picked up after reading these two together, and I've read a couple of others, but reading two together really highlights that for me. So that was The Distance Between Us by Maggie O'Farrell. Wonderful. Well, the two that I have read also have um, sort of many parallels with some of the themes that you've talked about today. The first one that I read is The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, which she wrote in 2006. And the book opens with two young women attending a dance and then it moves to the memory of a young child aged four in India And we become aware that these are the memories of Esme, who is recalling her past. And Esme was in India as a young child with her parents in the early 1930s. She had an older sister, Kitty, and her mother was pregnant with another child. And Esme is a deeply sort of curious, animated and exuberant child. But to her parents, living in colonial India, she has just badly behaved. And like many children of her social standing, Esme and her sister spend a lot of time with her Ayab, who is her Indian nanny. And then the family experience a terrible sadness, which I'm not going to divulge. Mm -hmm. But Esme is at the epicentre of that trauma. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the 1930s, these are not matters that are ever spoken of uh, and trauma is buried. And that, again, is probably a theme of both of the books that, I, that I've that i read today. So the family moves from India back to Scotland to the grand home of Esme's paternal grandmother in Edinburgh. And the girls are sort of thrust into society where there's a spotlight probably on how you look and how you behave. And the girl's grandmother has very high expectations of them. 
And let's just say Esme is not born to conform. (laughs) I have to say this part of the book reminded me a lot of Evie Wilde's Bass Rock. It's very similar to the Gothic house that Ruth comes to post-war in that book. And also it invokes you know, all of those themes around the pressures on women to marry well and to put up with quite a lot in those days. Can I just say that's just amazing that you have mentioned that because in The Distance Between Us, Bass Rock comes into it. Ah, So yes. they're in the village that looks out onto Bass yes. Rock. Well, that is, point. I think it's North Berwick. I suspect it's Maggie O'Farrell lives near the, near the Firth of Forth. And, right. Yeah. And actually in this Maggie O'Farrell book, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, the characters visit the beaches at North Berwick, where the characters go in Bass Rock as well, and so, which is on the south shore, I think, of the Firth of Forth. So then the book swings to the present time and we meet Iris Lockhart and she's a fiercely independent young woman. Her mother's in Australia, her father's died and she's an only child of sorts and she owns a shop in Edinburgh selling beautiful vintage clothes. And she receives a call from a man inquiring about her knowledge of a Euphemia Lennox and she gives him short shrift because it's not a name she's familiar with at all. But he persists and he calls her several times and he eventually explains that Iris's grandmother, Catherine, who has Alzheimer's uh, and for whom Iris has a power of attorney, has left instructions that Iris is to be the point of contact for any matters relating to this woman, Euphemia Lennox. And we find out that Euphemia is currently living in a hospital. Uh, Indeed, it's a nice word for a mental asylum which is on the other side of Edinburgh. And shockingly, she has been locked up for 60 years since the age of 16. And it's excruciatingly sad, isn't it, yeah, that idea? Yeah. There would have been so many people in that position. Yes. And it's, in fact, what Ruth is threatened with in Bass Rock. Oh, OK. So the whole Gothic theme of madness and people being committed to institutions sort of yep. rears its head in this book. But, of course, the obvious irony is that the hospital administrator tells Iris that the hospital is now being closed down for good and, in any event, Euphemia has been assessed as suitable for release. Oh, my god! So one one wonders why she had not been assessed as suitable for release earlier. It's a miracle, isn't it, that she was suddenly um, acceptable to go out into community. It's extraordinary. So she's handed into the care of Iris, and this is really the story about Euphemia finding her way back. She's in her 70s, and I particularly loved, it's a very sort of short part of the book, because it isn't a long book. It's it's less than 300 pages, and and I sat like you and read it just in one go. Yeah, it's such a great story. But the the relationship between Iris and Euphemia, trying to get to know each other and sharing bits and pieces of their lives, it's very tender and beautifully written. It's really lovely. The book isn't written in a linear way, as you have described with your two books. Maggie O'Farrell is really adept at zigzagging back and forth, in this case between generations. And what she also does in this book is she alternates between snippets of memory of three main characters. And initially, and I think it's deliberate, you're not quite sure whose memory it is you're reading. Yeah, she does that very deliberately. Yeah, and then as you gather more narrative, yes. you've got clues. Yes, I and you love know, you know, you know who's in a voice. I love an Easter egg. <laughs> yes. I love a clue. It's, I think this is one of my favourite books yeah, ever. Yeah, it's just, yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. I'm not going to share any more of the story at all, 
safe to say that the ending is an absolute soccer punch. Yeah. And some of you will love it and some of you will hate it. And uh, we'll say in a little bit, in a short while, a little bit more about what Maggie O'Farrell does with the resolution of her books because she doesn't make things easy at all no. for people. And, I, and that's what I love about yeah, it because yeah. life isn't neat. No, it isn't. And tidy. Yeah. Well, I was in the Love It camp and I remember, and it's a long time since I read it, probably since 2006, mm. and I think we did it for book club and my memory is that everyone loved it. Mm. So I, mm. I don't think I've heard the other camp. I have, okay. but I, I, I just loved it. And mm. I, I, it is part of her yeah. reflecting real life. Yeah. So the next book I read was Instructions for a Heatwave, which she wrote in 2013, which I have read before, but it was a complete pleasure to revisit it because it's just fantastic. It's it's sort of what I describe briefly as an intimate portrait of a family in crisis, as indeed all these books yeah, are to yeah, a lesser yeah. and greater extent. So we have a mother, Greta, and a father, Robert, and their three grown-up children, Michael Francis, Monica, and Aoife. The story opens in the late 1970s. Now, as a point of fact, in 1976, the British Isles experienced a heatwave for 66 days and a severe drought, and it was one of the driest and warmest summers on record. And there were devastating fires throughout southern England, and thousands and thousands of trees were destroyed, and I think over £500 million worth of crops failed. And it's against the backdrop of that sort of oppressive heat that the book is written. And all through the book, there are references to the restrictions and the rules that were actually imposed and sort of the impact that it had on people staying indoors. And Was this dealt with in The Crown when the government had made everybody switch off their power? Yes, with um, Edward Heath. Was that the same Because mm. I came to Australia in 1974. We emigrated in 1974 and I think it was the government thereafter. I, th I think that yeah. was the heat wave. Yeah, and, of course, there were all sorts of problems. And no one the, was allowed to in the put 70s in the electricity UK. on. And, yeah. yeah. So when the book commences, Robert has recently retired as a bank manager and he and Greta are living in Highbury in London and that's where the children have grown up. So they're still in the family home. Um, they're both from Ireland and they live in an area of London where many other Irish people live. And for Greta particularly, her Irish heritage and um, also her Catholicism remains very important to her. And she's most definitely tried to impose it on her children. <laughs> and, of course, the troubles started in Ireland in the late 1960s, so many Irish people in England face significant prejudice, as indeed Greta has done from time to time as, as well. As did Maggie. Yes, exactly. Herself. Yeah. So Michael Francis is a history teacher. He lives in Stoke Newington, which is a little bit further north, with his wife and two very young children. And as the book opens, it is the last day of term before the long summer holiday. His elder sister, the eldest sister, sorry, Monica, she lives in Gloucestershire. She's married to Peter and he already has two little girls and she is trying very hard to be the best stepmother and wife that she can be. And then the third child, Aoife, is the youngest by several years. Greta had many miscarriages before Aoife came along. But Aoife is living in New York. She has the job of her dreams, working as an assistant for a well-known photographer. But she's sort of run away and she's estranged to an extent from her mother and from Monica. So what Maggie O'Farrell does in this book, she sort of creates silos for each of the characters. She has separate chapters devoted to each of Greta, 
Michael, Monica and Aoife. So we get to know them separately. Right. And we get to know their past and their present, but particularly in vintage Maggie O'Farrell style, we sort of have their internal voices about other members of the family. And as is always the way with families, where there is conflict, family members rarely have the same recollection. Mm. We talk about this so much, don't we? And when they don't deal with conflict, the layers of misunderstanding settle on the family, don't they? Yeah. So on the morning of Thursday the 15th of July, Robert rises early, as he always does, and he lovingly lays a breakfast tray for Greta. And then he tells her he's popping out to get a newspaper, which is his routine every morning at 6.45 on the dot. But this morning he doesn't come back. Oh. And this is the trigger. So this is the crisis that kind of brings the family, the children, back to their mother. Wow. And they have to work out where he is gone and why. Oh. And, of course, I have to read this. You do, you'll love it. All of them are hot and bothered in the heat wave. Each of them has their own personal crisis going on. Each of them has their own prejudices and grudges against each other. And all of these things converge. And, obviously, the theme today is, you know, talking about Maggie O'Farrell getting under the skin of families. But what I really like is she often takes something. I'm not going to say it's mundane, that's the wrong word, but she takes some sort of event or some part of family dysfunction that many normal people can relate to. And I'm, I'm not suggesting what happens in this book and the impact on these family members is not significant. It, it is. It, it has an impact on their lives. But lots of families have secrets. Yeah. And lots of families have quite bad conflict and you can find your way back from it so it's very accessible even if it seems dramatic and catastrophic at the time it's it's it's, completely relatable it's completely relatable Mm. and I think that's one of the magics here we're not talking about things that you can't recover from yeah but I guess that brings us to resolution because even though you might recover and even though there might be some you know, meeting of minds or some, you know, dealing with the issues, the resolution isn't neat and tidy. No. And, and it's the same yeah. in, in this book as well. And and sometimes she just leaves you wondering Yeah, well, what I love books next. like that. I like it when it's up to me to decide what might ha- have happened next. And that's exactly mm. what happens in this book, mm. I think. And when you think about it, Hamnet was a bit like that as well. Yeah. We kind of didn't really know yeah. what was going to happen. She was living in the town and yes, with the children and we right. didn't kind of, and she sort of left it to us, didn't yeah, she? Yeah. And I yeah. love that. Yes, it's very true. So that. that is Instructions for a Heat Wave and that was published in 2013. So it's a relatively recent Oh, that book. sounds so good, Louise. I absolutely loved one. it. So the next thing I thought we would do is a life hack. Yes. Which I have. Good, because I don't have any. <laughs> I just thought of this because it's something that I've been doing in the last couple of weeks, which is on my, and both of our, in fact, our Instagram accounts, I've had to teach myself how to do the little videos, which they call reels. Mm. And this is because of TikTok. TikTok has become, you know, the most popular form of social media, particularly for younger people. Mm. And so Instagram's response to that was to create a similar Mm. device for sharing little videos. And in fact, Adam Mosseri, who I follow, he's the head of Instagram. He has said that Instagram is no longer a photo sharing app. Wow. So that sort of gives you an idea Mm. of where they're heading. Of how it's moving. Yeah. 
And it's just been quite an interesting experience for me because it seemed incredibly difficult. Mm. I had no idea how to do it. Um, you know, frankly, I still don't. I've only mm. done a few. But I can also see how it's just been that interesting process of learning something new and saying, what do I click on? How do I make that shorter? How do I cut that? How do I put the music on? Where do I find them? All the little components. It's just been a really good experience mm. for my brain to make me learn something new. And I've also realised something else, which is that you can tell a little story in seven seconds. Wow. Yes. Which I previously would not have believed. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a very complicated story. No. It might be just Sometimes you know, something the, very simple. some of the best when they're but not complicated. just a little, you know, this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. Mm can be done through the medium of a visual mm. image plus some words and you can get a little tiny story. And then obviously with longer ones, you can mm. tell a much more layered and complex story. So that's my life. I'm Challenge yourself impressed. to try something new because it is good fun. I am so impressed. So, so impressed. I have said that when I turn, I'm not going to say the corner into the next decade, I'm going to take up the piano. That's my thing. Cool. I, I think every 10 years you should try something new, yeah. but maybe it should be every year or every five years. Yeah. I have just thought of a life hack. Oh, cool. Because Virginia has been extremely generous. She has not mentioned that when she arrived at the studio this morning, <laughs> <laughs> I had lost all my notes. <laughs> Because we do like to prepare a few notes for these podcasts. You, it may sound like we're doing it off the cuff, but actually we like to pre prepare a few notes. And I had completely lost mine because I had not saved them <laughs> on my computer and I did not have the auto recovery turned on. So, folks, oh, yeah. save your work. Yeah. And so here we are in the afternoon because Virginia's given me a little bit of time to gather myself together. That was so funny. When you said you gave me a not before time and I felt like I was coming back for a chamber summons or a directions <laughs> hearing in court, yes. like not before 2.30. Very cute. Uh, so then we have, we now have our little bookish item. Mm. I have two. Mm. One is that I just uh, recently read that Dolly Parton is writing a book mm. with James Patterson, which I thought was quite interesting. He, of course, has written one with Bill Clinton. Do you think he hires himself out? Or how does it happen? I don't know. But, I mean, when you think about it, Dolly Parton is one of the best storytellers is. there is in her medium. I mean, that story, Jolene, I know. is such a great story. Yes. In fact, a lot of her songs have got such a great story in them. You know, I'm not sure she needs James Patterson. <laughs> no. Well, I think he approached her right. from the article that I read. I'm not 100% sure about that. And presumably, you know, Individually, they could probably write their books and be fine, but to put the two together mm. probably gives it some extra star power. I, I think know. it is the star power thing. I know he did the thing with Bill Clinton, and I have to say I didn't really enjoy that book at I all. I haven't read it. And I just, I But I'm not, I'm, he's yes. not one of my authors. I do wonder if the publishers put people together like maybe. this. I think it's a publishing thing, yeah. but anyway. Yeah, it, well, it'll be interesting to see because we love Dolly. We love Dolly, and I that reminds me. Her Imagination Library, which is her charitable foundation, oh, yes. has recently entered into a agreement with the New South Wales government to deliver free books to children in New South Wales. And I think it's an $8 million partnership that she's, yep. she's amazing. That charity is incredible. In America, if you have a child who doesn't have access to books... Pretty much no questions asked. You just let them know and they will send oh, your child phenomenal. a free book that's mm. age-appropriate to them 
For nothing. Mm. It's fantastic. And when, and when you listen to the Dolly Parton podcast and you learn, and she has such a deep dive into her childhood yeah. and the poverty yeah. and yet such a rich, beautiful home life that mm. she had, you realise how she invests so much mm. in education. Mm. Incredible. She's, she's fantastic. Incredible woman. And then the other item, not to bring the mood down, but I think it's important to just for, to all, when we're talking about books, to remember or to, to think and reflect on the fact that now in Afghanistan all the women are busy hiding their mm. books and pretending that they don't own any and keeping them away from the Taliban. And it's been a very, very sobering. tough time. So it's very sobering Terrible. and it's a reminder of how absolutely lucky we are to be able to read our books and be educated. And Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. We're almost back to the beginning again, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I think there's going to be some interesting steps, uh, next steps with that story, but mm. we'll we'll watch and wait. So what else have you been diving into recently, Lou? Well, I just wanted to mention for listeners that... The How to Fail podcast, which you and I both love with Elizabeth Day, wrapped up its most recent season for a summer break uh, at the end of July. And the last episode was, in fact, an interview with Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, fantastic. And the the structure of that podcast is great because I think Elizabeth Day gets her interviewees to identify three occasions where they think they've failed. Uh, And it's really interesting. So there's a lot of interviews around with Maggie O'Farrell, particularly given that Hamnet won the Women's Prize. So it's quite nice to listen to an interview where she's sort of talking about things other than just her books. Having said that, her books are absolutely magnificent, as we've shown, but it's worth listening to. That's really good. Yeah, that sounds great. And the other thing I thought I'd talk about because I've sort of been on a little bit of a quest to find joy, particularly given the ongoing issues with the pandemic. And the world. And the world. And particularly, you have just mentioned, the abhorrent situation that's unfolded in Afghanistan. I just loved, loved, loved the Olympics. And the apparel Olympics have now started. And I think that this is the joy that all of us have needed. Yeah. Um, You know, they haven't had the crowds and all the usual hoopla that the Olympics bring, but there will have been lots and lots of people sitting at home, many in lockdown, and I think it's brought a lot of positivity and joy to our lives. You know, all the aspirational stories of athletes and the obstacles they have to overcome, I think that people will remember the Tokyo Olympics for many years to come. Yeah, that's true. But... In that vein, as part of my quest for joy and positivity, I started reading The Kindness Revolution by Hugh McKay. Now, for those of you who don't know, Hugh McKay, or is it Mackay? I think it's McKay, isn't it? I don't know how he says it. Sorry. It's all right. Well, I'm sure someone will tell me. He's a psychologist, he's a philosopher, a novelist, and he's probably Australia's most well-known social researcher. He has spent decades speaking to Australians uh, about what it means to be Australian, what makes us tick. Indeed, one of his books is called What Makes Us Tick. And then in 2018, he completed a huge sociological survey and published the results in a book 
Australia Reimagined, which is actually a very sobering, although balanced, assessment of Australia. Not all good news, um, in his opinion. He came up with that line, misplaced optimism is more dangerous than blind faith. Oh, I love that. Which is superb. Oh, my goodness. Just superb. Anyway, his latest book is The Kindest Revolution, and I'm only halfway through, but it's really wise. I just That's just oh. the most perfect word for him. And it's shaping up to be a really, really positive book. So I'm just going to read the back cover of it because I think this will make you all go out and buy it. So revolutions never start at the top. If we dare to dream of a more loving country, a kinder, more compassionate, more cooperative, more respectful, more inclusive, more egalitarian, more harmonious, less cynical, there's only one way to start turning that dream into a reality. Each of us must live as if this is already that country. Following the ravages of 2020's bushfires and pandemic on our mental and emotional health and on the economy, Hugh Mackay reflects on the challenges we face during that year of upheaval and the questions many of us have asked. What really matters to me? Am I living the kind of life I want? What sort of society do I want us to become? He urges us not to let those questions go and points to our inspiring displays of kindness and consideration, our personal sacrifices for the common good and our heightened appreciation of the value of local neighbourhoods and communities. He asks us in turn, could we become renowned as a loving country rather than simply a lucky one? Ooh. So good. Well, you mentioned this to me, so I went and bought it, but I haven't read it yet. Now I really want to read it. Just so good. He's just... He is How inspiring. Yeah, really inspiring. And it's exactly the kind of book we should all be reading. Okay. okay. Um, so that that's The wonderful. Kindness Revolution, Hugh Mackay. It's actually published in Australia by Alan and Wynne. Okay. Um, but I'm sure it's widely available. And the only other thing I wanted to mention on my joy quest is I have been binging the TV series Hacks. Oh, yes, I've seen the ads. I haven't watched it yet, though. It looks so funny. It's so funny. It's quite black. Yes. Yeah, it's quite dark, It's but it's fantastic. So the ageing Vegas comedian Deborah Vance, who is played by Jean Smart, who's fabulous, she's got a touch of the Maggie Smith about she it. does, yeah. yeah. She's thought to be losing her touch as a performer and she's thrown together with a writer, a young woman, Ava, who has been culturally cancelled because she tweeted something inappropriate. <laughs> uh, it's so binge-worthy. It's so now. It is. So and it's Vegas and L.A. and it's, it's great. I think you said you thought it might have been based on Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers might have been an inspiration yes, for it. Yeah. It's superb. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely worth watching. Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds great, Lou. What are you, about you? What have you been diving into? Two podcasts I was just going to mention. One is the one that I sort of flagged that I was halfway through last time we yes. spoke, which is a five-parter that's on BBC Sounds, and it's called The House That Vanished. Mm. And it's about a guy in the late 90s who... He was a filmmaker. He was very successful and he and his wife owned a little very sturdy house on this very remote island off the coast of Ireland. The island is called Tory Island and it has no shops, almost no power, no no nothing really. It's this little tiny island that's sort of run by the people on the island, very much something that seems like it's straight out of about the 19th century. And he'd bought it as a sort of a, a place to escape. And then he'd gone over and was living in New Zealand and came back with his wife and went, got on the ferry to go over to the island to visit and his house had disappeared. And it's the story of then what happened to mm. him next. It's quite 
awful mm. in the sense that it had a very severe impact on him personally. Mm. But if I said to you that his little house was blocking the view of the new hotel mm. over Don't, the road, Virginia, I think no. your mind can figure out oh. perhaps uh, some of the questions that he oh. asked that no one seemed to be willing to answer. <laughs> it's taking me back to that Chris Whitaker book as well. Yeah. Oh, Virginia, so, no. Uh, he then tries to find out what happened to his house and it's got these gorgeous dramatisations with the beautiful, thick Irish mm. accents. And, you know, one old lady says, oh, your house, it just, it just blew away overnight. <laughs> just all this sort of nonsense. So it sounds like there's a conspiracy and then, then going on. then it was said on. to have sort of fallen down and then it was said to have burnt down. So they've it, all got a different there's story. There's all sorts of inconsistencies. Oh and the Gardaí come out to investigate yeah. six weeks later and find nothing because... All the bits that seem to have been there after the fire uh, have disappeared. <laughs> so it's just really well done, a little five-parter. It's sort, of, it's sort of a true crime but not a murder. <laughs> mm, I love it. Really, really good. So I loved that. And then the other one that I've really enjoyed was I listened to the Desert Island Discs with Maggie O'Farrell. That aired on the 21st of March 2020, mm. so it's just as the pandemic mm. uh, had begun. And yeah, people felt that they'd been on, they were on deserted islands anyway. Yes. And so it does sort of touch on that a little bit. Boy, I don't think she knew what she was mm. in for after that. But it's a really good interview. It covers her whole, because, of course, the music goes mm. back to her younger life and it does cover her encephalitis and various things. So I really loved it. Once again, though, listening to Desert Island Discs, I'm always bewildered by why in 2021 they give out the work, complete works of Shakespeare, I mm. understand that, but then they give out a Bible. Mm. And every time I listen to it, I just am mystified as to why that still happens. I just don't understand why in a culture like the UK, which is a very diverse, multicultural, mm. multi-belief society mm. where people would believe in the Torah or the Quran mm. or nothing, why they're still handing out yes, a Bible quite, at the end of it, it seems is quite strange, doesn't uh, it? Does seem to me very mm. out of date, a bit of a mystery. But can I say also, being a huge lover of Shakespeare that I am, query also yeah. why they're still giving out the complete works of Shakespeare. I mean, it's interesting why they chose that and not Chaucer or, yep. you know, if you. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's quite interesting how they stuck to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mm. think it's been doing, they've been doing that for 60 or 70 years and they're not going to change maybe. But yes. So think, our, our recommendation yeah. is please give out the entire nine novels <laughs> of Maggie O'Farrell. <laughs> much more entertaining, I yes. suspect, or certainly much more um, accessible. Mm. <laughs> so that's it for us and our Maggie O'Farrell deep dive. I really do want to read instructions mm. for a heat wave now. And there's another one called This Must Be the yes, Place. This Must Be the Place, good. yep. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about our four books today from this fabulous author. Let us know what your favourite Maggie O'Farrell book is. I think a lot of people will probably say Hamnet, but I'd be very interested to hear about some others that you've mm. enjoyed from her backlist because she's got some really great ones mm. there. And we'll be back again soon with another episode. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. 
If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Were you signalling me? <laughs> I actually wasn't. I thought Louise was signalling me that I... Something doing something funny with my headphones. No, Just you weren't. Cut I'm all that. so sorry. No, all good. Okay. Just my face. <laughs>